0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Sam Shaheen, a senior editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today I'm talking with Jonathan Ellsworth about a big objective I recently completed on Torrey's Peak in Colorado. We discussed the details of this so-called Torrey's Peak Triple Crown, the D-scale of rating ski descents, the gear, apparel, and food that I used on the mountain, And we finish up with a discussion of the safety and decision-making process throughout the day. I've been working on completing this objective for several years, so it feels great to have finally ticked it off. And I think this conversation could be useful and interesting for anyone who likes to spend time in the mountains.
1: Well, Sam Shaheen, you just had a pretty big day in the mountains And so we just kind of thought that it might be interesting to some people to hear about this day of yours, and then to get kind of the rationale behind some of the gear choices and equipment decisions that you made for this day. So this big day of yours was just this past Saturday, and why don't you tell us a bit about what you were up to,
0: what the objective was? So the idea with the objective is what we've kind of been calling in my group of ski mountaineering friends, the uh, Tories Peak Triple Crown, or the Tories 10K, or the Tories Triple, something like that. You know, for years we've been skiing in this sort of Greys and Tories Peak zone in the Front Range of Colorado, which is this beautiful basin with two large 14ers, Greys Peak and Tories Peak. Torrey's Peak happens to be one of the best ski mountaineering peaks in the Front Range. There's lines off of all different sides of it and a lot of different really cool variety on the peak. So Several years ago, we this kind of idea popped into our heads of like, hey, you know, there's really cool lines that span all different aspects of this peak. And theoretically, you could ski them all in a day and kind of, you know, follow the sun around the mountain. And that was kind of where the, uh, with the idea of the Tories, the Tories Triple Crown was born. And uh, over the past several years, we've tried it several times and failed several times um, for various reasons. But... This past Saturday, everything sort of came together, and the weather was excellent, the um, conditions were excellent, and it all went off relatively without a hitch. Um, The general idea of the day is that you ski three separate lines on Torrey's Peak, summiting the peak three times as well. It amounts to about 10k of vertical, about 13 miles. You summit the 14 or three different times, and the entire day is over 10,000 feet, so it's not an, it's not an absolutely absurd amount of vertical. It's not a super long day mileage wise. The really hard part about the day is that it's all really high elevation. So the vast majority of your of your exertions going between 11k and 14k. and it's, uh it's a, it's a slow and it's a slow and steady slog, but we had a great time. So for those of you who are familiar with the mountain, the way the lines kind of work out is, um, we skied a line called Dead Dog first. This is an east-facing couloir that kind of goes on the skier's left side of the east face, goes at D12R2, and it's about 2,000 feet, Uh, faces due east. After you ski Dead Dog, you loop back up to the summit again, then you ski Emperor, the Emperor couloir, which goes due north off the summit, so faces due north, it's a little little more challenging, D13, and uh, then you loop around, sort of around the north flank of the mountain, and you boot up tuning fork, which is a much easier line. D7 is just a long boot pack, but almost, almost 3,300 feet back to the summit for your third summit. And then you ski down that same line that you, that you booted up. So one of the things that you and I also had said, we kind of wanted to talk about
1: was just these rating systems. I think there's maybe a few people, at least listening to this, who, when you just said D12, D13, D7, they're like, what is that? Do you want to talk for a second, Sam, about the d system
0: and and explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. um people people who know me know that uh, <laughs> inaccurately representing ski lines is one of my like biggest pet peeves. People have this <laughs> tendency to just like, make things sound so much gnarlier than they actually are. Like, oh, this line was 65 degrees. And it was just like, you know, the gnarliest thing ever. And then you get on it and it's like low 40s. You're like, yeah, 40 degrees is steep, but it's also 40 degrees. And it's like an objective measurement that you can take with your phone. You know, there's an app built into your iPhone that'll show you how steep the line is. There are are many different scales out there that people have come up with for rating difficulty of ski lines, but none of them are as good and as straightforward as the D scale. Universally I mean for sure this 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 scale is the is the best and um, you know in Europe they use a different scale that that is really kind of similar to rock climbing scales and the actual grades that that you end up skiing at which is gets quite confusing and their risk scale isn't isn't as granular as it needs to be to make it useful the D scale is an open-ended scale that goes from d0 up to open ended it goes as high as, high as it high as it can go right now d 21 22 23 is kind of what the cutting edge of ski mountaineering is and honestly probably can't get much harder than that given just the way snow sticks to mountains and then the d scale is also accompanied with a risk scale so like i said dead dog is rated d12 r2 that basically means d12 means there's some steep skiing for sure you're in the you know mid 40s range steep skiing or maybe not quite as steep but there's like technical terrain features but on Dead Dog, it's the, the entrance is, is mid-40s. It gets steep for sure. And then R2 is a level of risk. So the risk scale is not open-ended. It goes R1 through R5. R1 meaning basically there's very little risk to this. If you fall, you're going to hit the ground, and that's about it. R5 is basically if you fall, you're going to die, certainly. Um, so when I say Dead Dog is D12, R2, it's steep. There are steep parts of it. R2 means if you fall, you're going to slide. You're going to slide down most of the line if you fall, but you're not going to get slid off a cliff. You're probably going to be okay. The D scale, just like a rock climbing scale is based off the hardest section of a line. So if the whole line is really easy, but there's one super steep, really technical section, it's going to get a pretty hard rating. I do think that the D scale, I really wish it was more widely used and that as ski mountaineering gets more and more popular, this scale is going to become more and more used. And the more we can familiarize the general ski mountaineering public about the system, the more people start using it, I think it's going to be better for, for everyone who gets out in the mountains. What do you think about the idea, though, that the R scale should get a little more nuanced rather than like 1 to 5 go 1 to 10? I understand, like I understand that logic, but I think that the R scale is... Is kind of it's a bit subjective a lot of times, you know. You don't really know what's going to happen when you fall. You know, a lot of the lines that we sort of classify as "you fall, you die," probably you fall, you might not die. You can go off like like for instance, the northeast face of North Maroon, the Stamberger Ledges route. Stamberger, the guy who did it first, he fell. He went off that hundred foot cliff at the bottom and he survived. Um, but that's widely considered a "you fall, you die" line. So I think that there, there is a lot of subjectivity to the risk. Also, when people are skiing lines, the risk is almost more associated with a fear factor. Like how scared were you on, on the line? It's much more of an emotional rating where the D scale part of the D scale is you know, a bit more objective and like, oh, this is exactly how steep it was. This is how hard the terrain feature was to get around, you know, et cetera. Um, like I was saying, in Europe, they use a risk scale And it only has four levels and it's incredibly unhelpful because level two is like, if you fall, you're going to be fine. And level three is like, if you fall, you might die. And I think most people want to put their risk somewhere in between those two things for a lot of days. So I am personally okay with the, with, with the four scale, you know, five is you fall, you die. R four is you fall. You're going to be, you're going to be hurting for sure. And R three and R two is where most ski mountaineering happens um, in Colorado, at least. Yeah. And I guess. You could make a case that by only
1: having a one to five on the risk side, if there is a crux section that is truly you fall, you die, it doesn't matter if there's seven of those sections. If there's one, people need to know that, and even if it's a pretty chill line with just one crux R5, well, you're going to have to deal with that section, and so maybe you shouldn't get on that line unless you are prepared to— you know, suffer the consequences. Maybe that's the case
0: against going to like a ten, one to 10 on that scale. Yeah. And I think too, just to keep it simple, you know, it's easy, it's easy to understand one through five and just, I mean, it's not hard to understand one through 10, but um, I'm a big fan of simplicity. Two important points
1: here. I really am glad to hear how peeved you get by people overestimating the steepness of lines. So basically, every time you use the word decently or edgy, I'm going to put into my review how I was skiing a 65 degree <laughs> slope. And the peop- only the people, people are gonna be like, man, this guy skis 65 degrees all the time. <laughs> but those of us who listen to this conversation will know that it's just kind of a middle finger to you Sam. So uh
0: well, but I would also like to point out that my pet peeve is based in things that could like really like affect my well-being as a person, you know? Last year we skied this line called Superstar on James Peak here in the Front Range of Colorado. And you go on the internet and people are like, "Yeah, the line's 65 degrees, you know, um there's a popular website that rates it a D19, which D19 is really hard, you know. Dead dog is D12 and it's pretty mellow. D19 is like, this is serious. You know, you're talking 55, 60 degrees, complicating terrain features, gnarly stuff. And we went up and skied it and there's maybe two turns of 55 degree skiing and the rest of it's a 45 degree wide open line with essentially zero fall hazard. It's not D19 R4, it's D16 R3 R2 and it's fine when people overestimate it from a safety perspective, but if people are misestimating the steepness of lines, that can be a dangerous thing. You know,
1: I take offense at the fact that you are minimizing the <laughs> degree that it pains me when you use terrible words to describe <laughs> things. This is uh, this is equally offensive, and the consequences are 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 equally painful. I would like to to argue so. The other thing I would like to do is invite all Europeans to impolitely respond to your bashing of their, their system. <laughs> and so please, we welcome all angry comments. Feel free to use any kind of
0: ad hominem argument or attack on Sam.
1: That would be most welcome.
0: Well, in defense of the French system, I will say they use a different rock climbing rating scale over there. So it doesn't confuse that. You know, it's, it's more of it's more of this is sort of the North American perspective. But I do think that their risk scale is not granular enough and that it is almost completely unhelpful.
1: Europeans, I'm sorry for Sam's dismissiveness of the European culture. Uh, <laughs> we know it's a problem. And again, we invite you to lash out. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Saturday, you ticked off Dead Dog Coulard, Emperor Coulard and Tuning Fork. How long did this take you on this particular day, given the conditions and everything else? You left the car when and got back to the car when?
0: Yeah, so for those familiar with the with the spot, we parked at Grizzly Gulch, the Grizzly Gulch fork on, on the road up to Torres. We started, we left the car at 5 a.m. and we got back to the car about 3.30 in the afternoon. So we had a, about a 10 and a half hour, a little less than 10 and a half hour day. Definitely not setting any speed records here with that. The goal of the trip, especially after having several failed attempts, was to just slow and steady, chug it out, and make sure that we accomplished all of the lines rather than do it as quickly as we could. So yeah, over 10 hours. So let's talk about the gear. Tell us about some of the stuff you brought and why
1: you decided to bring that.
0: Yeah, as we were talking earlier about this, I think one of the reasons that having this conversation is going to be interesting and useful for people is that I think about gear all the time. You know, it's my job. I'm writing about gear. I'm testing gear constantly. And choosing gear for this for this trip was difficult for me. You know, I sat down. It took me several hours of thinking to kind of figure out what's the best stuff to bring. Because in a trip like this, weight is obviously at a premium. You know, the more you're carrying, the t- more tired you're going to get. And on a big endurance day like this, keeping weight to minimum is super important. But also, things like a broken binding or having, you know, like the, the wrong apparel could be a thing that derails a day like this as well. So it's balancing that, having it be super lightweight, while also durability and functionality, and then balancing safety as well into this whole thing. Because when you're out in in the backcountry for such a long day, you know, there's always, always going to be increased safety concerns. So I guess um, I'll kind of just go through the gear list and Hit the, hit the highlights. Yeah, and we will say we're going to publish in the
1: show notes to this episode kind of a complete list from the gear to your apparel to the food that you ate. And so we might touch on any and all of that here. But if anybody wants to see more of a complete list, just check out the show notes to
0: this episode on the website. So I'll dive in uh, with the exciting ones. First, let's talk skis. I brought the G3 Finder 102 in a 179 centimeter length. This is a pretty lightweight ski and it's a ski I've been liking so far. And honestly, this was probably my least favorite piece of equipment that I brought on this trip. And I'm I'm like, it kind of pains me to say this because it's a ski that I really, really want to like. But on last Saturday, I had some just some issues with it. In consistent and firm snow, the ski is really predictable and it holds a great edge and it's kind of confidence-inspiring and the shape feels really intuitive. Uh, the stance feels really intuitive too. You know, you can get neutral on it or you can drive it. And I liked it, but we skied a lot of variable conditions and a lot of powder on last Saturday, actually. And I had just some 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 hooking issues. You know, the ski was hooking up. It Like the shovels would pull across the fall line hard and then the tails would engage and like push the tips back down the fall line. And it was just... It was tough. And sometimes I get on a ski like that and it's like, oh, this ski like the problem is it's a shape problem and the ski, like, there's just it's just I'm not gonna get along with this ski with my ski style. That's not my thoughts on the Finder 102 after Saturday. I do think that it can probably be fixed largely with some 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 detuning and dialing in the tune. But I will be definitely working on that. Hopefully a little more later this season and definitely more next season and figuring out figuring out exactly what what that tune needs to be. But I chose that ski for its, for its weight and that I liked going into it. But that was that was definitely, if I had to redo it, I would have picked a ski that I was more familiar with because I'd only been on that ski three or four times before this day. Would you have gone heavier? Absolutely not. Maybe, I mean, maybe a little bit. The other ski I would have brought probably was the Solomon Mountain Explorer 95, which is a tad heavier. I think we're talking like 50, 60 grams, something like that. But just a ski that you're comfortable with. But weight, especially with skis on a huge day like this, weight is at such a big premium. It's funny though. I mean, again, I, I have not skied this
1: newest version of the Finder 102, but I mean, if you go back and read my review from what a couple seasons ago, and I was skiing a 185, everything is getting so much lighter than it used to be. And so it almost feels unfair to talk about a touring ski from a few years ago, given how weights have just kind of plummeted on so many touring skis. But yeah, that certainly wasn't a ski that I was saying I would sure want to break out on technical descents. You know, I liked it as a ski. If you're doing long approaches for pretty chill stuff, I thought it would be sweet. But yeah, I think, again, maybe not that relevant. I do think we're kind of in a braver, newer world in terms of touring skis and weights. But yeah, of those two skis, if you're talking to me about a consequential or technical descent, I probably personally would be reaching for that Mountain Explorer ninety five.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting that you and I have different skiing styles for sure, and the the Finder one hundred two and the Mountain Explorer ninety five cater to different styles of skiing. So in general, the Finder one hundred two more caters to my style than the Mountain Explorer ninety five. But they're two skis. The Mountain Explorer ninety five, especially the ski, I really like, and I do think I'll be able to dial in the Finder a bit better. Um but we'll just have to wait and see if 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 a tune clears up clears up that issue. It was only one day after all, you know.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is you are always talking about detuning stuff more than I am. I think it's because I'm a better skier. I just get along. I'm <laughs> yeah, able yeah, to that make tunes sense. work. And uh <laughs> No, but I mean it is a fact that like you are you seem to be a bit more sensitive to tune issues and I tended Generally, I think I tend to get along with stuff better and I'm like, yeah, I'll get used to it and the ski will kind of detune itself over a couple days. You are a lot quicker to
0: start rubbing on those edges. Yep, that's very true. What else? I had it mounted up with Zeds. Uh, that G3 z binding is a good binding. It's solid. I trust it. Um, I haven't had any issues with it. No pre-release. It works well. Um, the more and more I use it, I do find that switching it out of tour mode just takes a lot of effort. But that's kind of my biggest complaint at the moment with that binding. I, uh, If I had my druthers, I probably would have picked a lighter binding for a day like today because I think the Zed is a bit overkill. Some of the lines, if we, so there's an option in the day to ski instead of dead dog, the east face, which is a lot more consequential line. If we had decided to do that, I would have been happy to have the Zed and not an ultralight binding. For the other lines, an ultralight binding would have been okay. So what what would
1: you have gone with?
0: Something like, you know, uh, DinaFit Speed TLT, something, you know, like that, that Z comes in under 400 grams, but you could get, I mean, I, I could ski a binding 200 grams, you know, 200 or so gram binding would have been fine, I think. Which is interesting because I almost never would want to ski something like that, only on a day that's big like this um, would I want to do that. And I, and I wouldn't probably want to pair it with a super light ski though too like a you know a thousand gram ski I don't think that would have been good part of the thing that makes this day so fun is that all three of these lines are so good so although I wouldn't go heavier than the finder 102 I also don't think I'd go lighter that's that's about the the, the butter zone for being able to do the day and also enjoy the descents I would have just used an ion. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> next, next question.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about skins. What'd you use? I went G three with skins too. Uh, Alpinus Glide. It's their full mohair skin. I've been using this a lot this spring, and I've been really happy with it. My partner was using a BD nylon skin, then an, an, old, an older STS nylon skin on his split board, and he definitely had a touch better grip. And I would say that the grip was probably comparable. But I overall, I didn't have any issues with with, with the glide uh, on the skin tracks we, we were setting for this thing. They were all pretty, um, nothing nothing super steep or super technical skin track wise, and the skins worked fine. As far as boots go, I stuck with the old standard. I have still been skiing this Mistrale, Scarpa Mistrale RS and really liking it. The most important thing for a boot on a day like that was fit. You know, getting a blister on the first ascent would be a killer, you know, you wouldn't be able to finish the day. So, I, uh, I still taped my feet up significantly and was able to avoid any foot issues throughout the whole day. But that Mistrali RS is such a good balance of lightweight and great range of motion on the up, and you can crank that down and ski hard on the way down. And I, I really dig it. I dig that boot still. Poles, poles are kind of boring. I love the old Black Diamond Expedition One. It doesn't change lengths. It's super simple. It's lightweight. It's got a foam grip. Those are things I all like. I I will hold on to that poll forever because they just discontinued making it. But yeah, polls don't really matter. Honestly, like totally honestly. If you really need to switch lengths of polls, great. Get a get a poll that switches lengths, but for me it's not <laughs> a big deal. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> let's let's go to some gear I was really excited about, actually. This was the first day I was using the Arcteryx Alpha SK32 pack, which is their new ski mountaineering pack. And I was so psyched on this thing. It's super lightweight, um, very similar in weight to the um, to the Patagonia Ascensionist pack that I used to use very often. That was about a kilogram pack, I think 900 grams or so. And this Arc'teryx pack is is similarly, it comes in at a similar weight, but it uses this nylon bonded to Dyneema um, fabric that is super burly, and the pack is really bare bones and simple. It has an avi pocket in it, and then a main pocket. There's a side zip access, and that's about it. And for a day like this, it worked really well. I'm really excited to get more time in that thing, but that was that was a pack I, I really I really liked. Um, most of the sort of the the big decisions on gear, though, came when it comes to apparel. For gear, there's kind of, you know, like you can hemorrhage and decide, like, is avi gear necessary this late in the spring? For us, we we definitely brought it. We had just gotten a lot of snow the week before, and hell, it's still snowing right now in Colorado. There's a storm. There's a storm yesterday. Um, but we did bring the avi gear, small first aid kit, stuff like that. But uh, I do definitely want to talk about apparel a bit. So a lot of times, and I'm sure... You guys who go out there and ski tour a bunch, you go out, pack all this stuff, and half of your apparel stays in your pack. You know, maybe you bring a hard shell that you didn't need, or an insulator that you didn't end up using, or an extra pair of gloves, or a, you know, heavyweight pair of gloves that stayed in the pack. Um, I really wanted to to minimize that, and um, the base of the kit is to keep it super lightweight and as breathable as possible. So I am a huge fan of short sleeve crew neck. Face layers and is the lightest ones that you can get. So I've been wearing this super lightweight wool one. It when I bought it, it was 120 weight and now it's probably 80 weight. I've washed it and worn it so many times. Things got tons of holes in it, but it's super lightweight and it breathes crazy well. And that's kind of my go-to on big days always. So I brought that thing, just some some midweight merino socks, whatever works for you. I went back and forth for a while on what to do mid-layer-wise. Readers of the site know how much of a big fan I am of the R1 Tech Face series. And I have been testing a bunch of these sort of lightweight sun hoodies. And I've really started to like them for, you know, warmer days where, especially days where you're going to be out in the sun a bunch. And I thought about bringing a sun hoodie. I ended up not bringing a sun hoodie in the end because I wanted the option to wear that short sleeve crew on its own to burn as much heat as possible because things do get really hot here in Colorado, even up at high elevations. That sun hoodie would have been great and looking back on the day I'm glad I didn't bring it because it was pretty warm, but if it had been cooler just the ability to not have to reapply sunscreen to my arms all day long that would have been a big time save and I wouldn't have had to bring as much sunscreen too that would have saved a little bit of weight, um, things like that but I did end up going with the thin wool base layer and the R1 tech face pullover I also went back and forth on whether to wear the pullover or the regular one with a hood and a full zip in the front. I ended up going pullover and I probably would do the full zip with the hood if I had to go back and do it. On this line, a lot of times you're coming up over ridge lines where the wind is super, super heavy. And I would really like to be able to throw that hood up to block some wind from my face because I decided not to bring a hard shell. And not bringing a hard shell was, I think, a really good choice. And it wasn't make or break for the day, I don't think, but it could have been if I if I had gotten more tired towards the end of the day. You know, it saves three 400 grams in the pack, which is a pound, which is a decent amount of weight. So instead of bringing a hard shell, I brought the Patagonia Micropuff, which doubles as wind protection, has that has a hood on it, and can be an emergency insulator in case it gets cold or in case there's an injury and, you know, you need to camp out. For a little while, so the micro puff replaced my or to double duty as a hard shell and an insulator. So when I got up onto the ridge lines without having the hood on the Tech Face pullover, I was putting the micro puff on and getting a bit overheated um, to block the wind off my face. Honestly, I just want Patagonia to make that Tech Face pullover, like I mentioned in my review, with a hood. I think it would be the perfect piece if they if they put a, a minimal like under the helmet style hood on there. If they're if they're, if they're listening, if they're listening, Patagonia. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you wear pants on this mission? Funnily enough, I did. Um, I went with my all-time favorite Patagonia knife blade, now discontinued. Uh, not very helpful for all the people looking to buy gear out there, but it's a it's a soft shell pant with a membrane in it. For me, it just hits the perfect balance of breathability and protection. And it's super simple. It's bare bones on features and it has suspenders, all things that I love in a pant. Um, that was a no-brainer to go knife blade. I, lo- I love that pant. Other, otherwise, apparel was, was pretty basic. You know, I wore a face mask, thin gloves, brought a merino hat and a warm glove, pair of gloves that I didn't end up wearing because it was quite warm throughout the day. Um, but I wouldn't probably leave those out of the kit just for safety concerns. And again, we'll, we won't we will go into it here, but in,
1: Inquiring Minds, just check the show notes on the site. You can see exactly what
0: Sam had with him uh, on Saturday. Where are we going next? You know, food was one of the things I was really worried about and is sort of a big make or break thing for, for a day like this is keeping yourself fueled. The day before, I ate a ton of food. I drank a ton of water. Uh, whether carbo-loading works or not, I can't say, but... <laughs> I did eat a lot. Should we should we by the
1: way tell the people about how food is probably one of the biggest fights you and I get into? Like <laughs> it, you are probably the reason I will never have children because like when we go skiing, it's like we'll we'll eat something and then we'll we'll do like three laps in bounds and then Sam's like, "Man, I'm starving." When uh, you guys, you guys thinking about getting some food to eat? And I'm like, holy (laughs) shit, we just got out here. Counterpoint,
0: (laughs) counterpoint is Jonathan goes like a whole day without eating a single meal.
1: (laughs) Like, like, yes, there's
0: work to be done, Sam. We we, we need to come to some sort of middle ground where (laughs) I eat slightly less and you eat slightly more for your health and mine, I think. Yeah. And the new rule is Sam
1: has to start like packing his own snacks with him like when we go out cuz he's like man I'm starving and we'll like have a bunch of stuff it's like we just left a box of granola bars back in HQ or like something like that so we're working on this but this has been a a definite point of conflict in our in our relationship so we'll we'll see if this uh you know we'll see if we come to yeah Sam's middle ground at some
0: point <laughs> I I'm not optimistic. <laughs> no, I'm not
1: really either. But I think this does provide a proper context when you're like, when you say like, yeah, you know, food's really important to me. This is a big deal. I'm like, yes, this is a very big deal.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well, anyway, talking about food I ate on Saturday.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So um, for me, at least what works for me, I have a really fast metabolism um, and I've kind of figured out what what sort of food works for me. But I know on a long day like this that I just, I don't want to eat. Um, When you're constantly exerting yourself at that kind of level, a lot of times it's just sort of forcing calories down. And so it was really important for me to get a ton of variety and a lot of variety that was protein, protein heavy rather than carb heavy because I do just burn through carbs so fast. Um, One of the, I think probably the most important bit of food that I brought was a half pound of cooked bacon. Um, It was a half pound before I cooked it. So probably about a half of that. After after it was cooked, and that's really important. Um, a to get some fat and some protein, but mostly for the salt. Um, it's really easy to get dehydrated if you don't eat enough electrolytes and salt, and that bacon's salt heavy. So that really, I think that was that was big as far as my nutrition throughout the day. Otherwise, I ate a bunch of peanut butter, um, a couple bars, different you know variety of bars, and a goo some goo energy chews, which I've which I've grown to quite like as well. Um, I definitely didn't eat enough food throughout the day. I was forcing myself to eat at the end of the day and I I still left about half my food uneaten in my pack. Um, I wouldn't have packed less food for safety reasons and for just like to be able to have it. But yeah, the nutrition on a day like this definitely needs to be front and center when you're planning a big day because that's really important, make or break. Did you feel like you bonked? No, I don't think either me or my partner Tommy bonked. I know on his first attempt, he definitely did bonk. Um, and because of that, we definitely looked at our nutrition a bit more closely for this attempt. But no, just like extreme exhaustion for sure. But never was I at the point where, like, yeah, definitely. I mean, that bonking is terrible. Like, it just feels awful. You know, you just feel like your body is completely useless and you can't even think right, and it's it's awful. So no, I we did not bonk.
1: Whoever came up with the term bonking, good good job by you. Like that is really like the perfect word to describe. The awful uh, feeling. Yeah, it's not great. I did see. I think you told me you also had like some Justin's peanut butter.
0: Yeah, I love those.
1: Oh, not peanut butter cups, but peanut butter packets.
0: Yeah, they're just little little packets of peanut butter. You can get them like almond butter, peanut butter, and they make it with honey and maple as well. They're like 200 calories for a little tiny packet. I think each packet weighs 32 grams. 200 calories, 32 grams I mean it's it's super dense calorically, and. Uh, They're easy to eat. You can just slurp one down really fast, and it provides—you know—it's mostly protein and fat, so it's a longer—it's a longer burning calorie than than you know a a sugary bar.
1: I've I've misunderstood you when you told me that because my girlfriend's like favorite thing in the world are are the Justin's peanut butter cups. Oh, they're delicious! So I was like, the next time you're trying to do the triple crown, you can probably get Nicole to go with you. Just tell her like you'll bring a bunch of peanut butter (laughs) cups, and she'll be like, "I'm in." So if you're if you're hurting for
0: partners next time. Let, well, that know. honestly sounds really good, though. I wish I, I had brought peanut butter cups <laughs> looking back at this list.
1: Uh, well, cool. We've gone over the gear. We've gone over apparel. We've gone
0: over the food. What else do we need to talk about? Um, honestly, I think that's probably about it. You know, I think uh, I think just the, the thought process going into these big lines, you know, everyone is going to do it differently. And where you live and the weather and all sorts of things like that are going to determine what gear you bring. And the most important thing is that you think about it all before, before you go into it. You know, we had failed attempts because of all sorts of reasons, but one of the failed attempts went because they brought the wrong gear. I I, I was not, I had to bail out earlier in that attempt for other reasons. I was sick, but my friends went up and got within a thousand feet of completing the objective. And because they didn't have, they decided not to bring crampons that day. They couldn't make it up the line. It was too icy to get up there. So Gear can definitely be make or break. Apparel can be make or break. Food can certainly be make or break. And uh, the more preparation you put into these things, the more likely you are to have a successful outing. Was
1: there, by the way, in terms of we didn't really talk about decision making, were there
0: any notable kind of question marks? Oh, yeah. So, you know, we did it on Memorial Day weekend, super late in the season, but the Colorado Avalanche Information Center put the avalanche danger up to orange on Saturday, up to considerable, which was kind of surprising. Initially, we the plan was to ski the east face instead of dead dog, which is the east face is a steeper line. It's very exposed. I think it goes at something like D15, D14, R4. You know, a fall would be really bad on it. Avalanche would be terrible. And uh, on our way up, we saw there's a big crown on the east face, so we were definitely, you know, worried about avalanches. When we went and poked in to dead dog, we found it to be very stable. We'd kind of made the decision earlier as we, when we saw that crown, we were like, all right, we're just going to ski dead dog. Um, but poking around in dead dog, there was, you know, like did several ski cuts, um, trying to just figure out what the snowpack was looking like and feeling like. And that was, that was, there was a tense few moments because, you know, making those decisions is hard and they can be very consequential if you get the decision wrong. You know, we went the conservative route. We cut out this, any potential slab at the top of the line and didn't get anything to move. But just two weeks ago, um, in that same line on another attempt, we got a bunch of stuff to move. Um, you know, there was, there was some slabs happening for sure. So after, after we poked in the dead dog and found good, good stability there, we found good stability the rest of the day, and it was much more mellow from a decision-making perspective. But that first, the first line was definitely a bit tense at the top.
1: I don't love the idea of you going out
0: when on a considerable day. Well, and I mean, I guess in defense too, considerable, they put it a considerable, I think for two reasons. One reason they didn't say, which was that it was the holiday weekend. The reason they did say is that it was going to be really warm and there were going to be rapidly warming wet slabs in the afternoon, which turned out to not happen. Weather moved in at the end of the day and it never any, at least on the aspects we were on at the time, never any, nothing ever got wet. But it's important to be able to read the forecast and understand the train that you're going to be getting into. I, I knew that no matter what they put the the avalanche forecast at, we were going to be able to go test it out and see if it was safe or not. And we had a bailout option that was 100% safe if we had to take it. So, you know, like, yes, it was orange. And yes, we went into the day with that in mind and trying to keep things as safe as possible. Um, but at no point in the day did we expose ourselves to undue risk for sure.
1: Okay. Good job, Sam. <laughs> We got too much for you to do around here. Like, I can't have you, you know, you get messed up. It's going to really set us back right now. So uh, keep your line choice uh, conducive to your workload at Blister.
0: Noted. <laughs> this is
1: really, in other words, I mean, and yeah, you know, stay safe too, Sam.
0: Yeah. 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 Thanks. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> Well, that's good, and I I appreciate you going over some of that, and and, uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, frankly, I do tend to more roll, just like, yep, if it's considerable, I don't care, you know, we'll save it for another day, but um, I'm happy to hear and to have you share with people. It's like, look, it was considerable, but we do feel like we had very clear reasons and plans and routes in place. It wasn't just, we weren't like, meh, whatever, we'll probably be okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely not. Even if it's green, it's never, met. whatever, will be okay, you know? Great point. It's every time you're out in the mountains, it's listening to the snow, paying attention to the weather and the lines and everything, and, like, you're always making your decisions that way, you know? That's that's what makes backcountry skiing so engaging. Well, good, man. Well, listen, um,
1: it does sound like a good day, and congrats on hitting the objectives, and um, fun to hear you kind of go through and talk a bit about the gear selection and the decision-making process.
0: All good stuff. Yeah, it was a a good day. I'm super, super happy that we made it happen. We've been trying for years now and psyched to have (laughs) finally gotten it.
1: Nice. Well, good, man. I have a feeling I'll be talking to you again very soon about some, uh, you know, some similar sounding things. Sounds good. All right. Take care, man. See ya.
0: That's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying these episodes, we'd very much appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or review in iTunes. And also spread the word to your Gearhead friends. Thanks, everybody. Please be safe out there, and we'll talk to you again next week.